my passion for milk quality I've had, but the, the economic side, I didn't didn't realize how important that was till I started graduate school and, and the project that I was working on is focused in economics. And A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Exelite by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. R Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Typical fresh cow incidence of clinical hypocalcemia is three to 6%, while subclinical hypocalcemia affects 50% or more mature cows. Based on cutting-edge research, Exelite offers a new approach that is build-effective and the ZDUs. For more information, visit www.protecta.com. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. Uh, this morning, afternoon, depending on, on where you're listening, we're uh, happy to welcome Derek Nolan. Uh, Derek is assistant professor and extension specialist uh, in the Department of Animal Science at the University of Illinois. And uh, welcome, Derek. How are you today? Good. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited about our conversation. Likewise, likewise. So Derek and I uh, had a few minutes to catch up before this recording. I uh, haven't met Derek before, but uh, interesting uh, background and, and, and really interested in his, uh, his work and extension work, uh, really looking into the economics of recommendation. So we know that, you know, many publications that we see, uh, show the biological benefits of, of implementation of you know, a strategy or potentially a, a product or supplement, but oftentimes that uh, lack the, the economic, uh, evaluation and, and rigor, you know, is this something that we should, uh, implement commercially on our dairies from an economic standpoint. So Derek, with that, if you could give a little bit of background to the audience of, of uh, you know, how you ended up in dairy, I guess by birth, it sounds, and then, uh, you know, how you got to where you are today. Yeah, great. So um, I grew up on a dairy farm in, in Northeast Iowa. Uh, we, my family milked just uh, around 75 head of cows in a tie stall barn. And it seemed like I I milked cows for every dairy producer in about three counties when they, when they went on vacation. I was the guy that got called in to to help do chores. But so uh, when I started college at at Iowa State University, I thought I've I've milked a lot of cows. I've uh, been involved with the industry. I might want to try something else. I think that lasted about two months before I was like I really miss the cows, and I really miss the. Uh, working with producers in the dairy industry. So I changed my major to dairy science at Iowa State and, and never looked back. Um, <clears throat> while I was at Iowa State uh, studying dairy science, I, I really gained a, an interest in milk quality. Um, I knew I, I kind of wanted to teach too. And, I, and through one of the ca classes, I learned about extension. 
Uh, and I thought, oh, if I could, if I could teach and, and be involved with anything, I want it to be the dairy industry. So uh, when looking at, at places for graduate school, I wanted to be focused on something that was, that was applied where I could be on farms, but also focus on milk quality. And I was, I was lucky enough to meet my future advisor, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Buley at a national ADSA meeting. And he said, yeah, I have a project in, in milk quality and uh, started at, at the University of Kentucky, where then I completed my, my master's and my PhD, focused with the research focused on, on milk quality and, and economics. Uh, from there, and some of the experiences I had uh, with the judging team and then with, with the project being very extension focused, um, looked for, as I was finishing up my PhD, something I was focused in extension. And I've always also had a passion for teaching. So that's something that would give me in the classroom. And the University of Illinois had a, a position open in, in teaching and extension. And I've been here now since uh, February of 2020, which was an interesting time to to start a new job. But I, I've loved it. It's It's been a wonderful opportunity. And it's been great to, to work with the dairy producers here in the state of Illinois, but but also around the country as well. Excellent. Well, thanks, Derek, uh, for uh, filling us in a little bit on your, your background and so forth. Um, so as I mentioned be before this recording, we, we connected a bit and uh, you know, one of your areas of interest is, is uh, milk quality, as you mentioned, and uh, the area of the economics of reducing somatic cell count. So can you give us a little bit of uh, background on that project and uh, uh, you know, what you found there? Because we know that uh, there's, there's premiums in, 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 in most cases with most co-ops to reduce cell count depending on the cutoffs. But you know, at some point, there's a, uh, there's a point of limited returns, right? So what, what efforts do you need to, to uh, invest to get, get lower? And, and what are the true economic benefits to that? Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, the, the, my, uh, my passion for milk quality I've had, but the, the economic side, I didn't, didn't realize how important that was till I started graduate school. And, and the project that I was working on is focused in economics. And um, so at, when I was at the University of Kentucky, I was involved in a, a USDA-funded project called the Southeast Quality Milk Initiative. And with that, we knew the the semantic cell count in the Southeast region was always the highest on average compared to other regions in the U.S. And the main goal of that project was kind of to determine why. And then my area was focused on if, if we can benefit and, and, and reduce our somatic cell counts, what, what kind of economic benefit can that have for the farm? But <clears throat> our interest really came of, we you know, many of the producers around the country and and in the southeast, they had a really low semantic cell count, but they only wanted to get lower. And I thought, is there an economic benefit to that? If if my semantic cell counts at a you know under two hundred thousand or around a hundred thousand, is it financially feasible for for the farm to to reduce their semantic cell count? Um, so what what we did to to kind of help answer that question is we took DRMS data and, and used a simulation model, um, and, and tried to determine then, you know, at, at what point is the, is the cutoff for, for semantic cell count and, and, uh, whether or not management practices are going to pay off. So we looked at three different, what we called three different management practices that might be low cost, um, 
medium cost and high cost. Um, and then looked at three different herd types too, a, a low somatic cell count herd that I think had a, a somatic cell count of, uh, around 110,000, a medium somatic cell count herd, which at that time when we were, when we were doing the project, the average for, for herds enrolled in DRMS was 250,000. So we used 250,000 for that average herd. And then, uh, the high somatic cell count herd had a somatic cell count, I think, of around 380,000. And the low and high somatic cell counts were, were based off the deviation from the average. And, and what we found is that the, the premium, if you're offered a premium for somatic cell count on your farm, that, that is a huge benefit to the economics of the dairy. So just in, in general and some of the, the data that we used, if, if a farm could reach that premium structure in the, the herds that we looked at, they could gain a, a, about $10,000 more um, a year just from, from reaching that premium. Um, now, <laughs> so in, in that case too, I think the highest milk, or the highest management practice we looked at um, was around $60 per, per cow per year. They could spend that $60 no problem and, and still make money. Uh, what we did find, though, by looking at the low and the high somatic cell count herds is that the distance that you are from that premium structure is really, really important. So if you're going to adopt a management practice Hoping not only that, you know, we know with the relationship between somatic cell count and milk production, not only hopefully make the cows will make a little more milk, but if you don't reach that, that premium structure, it, it's going to, you can spend basically a lot less money to get, to decrease your, your somatic cell count. Now, on the other end, uh, what we did find is that there is still some benefit though, even though if you're not, if you're not reducing or if you're not offered a premium there's still some benefit depending on where your herd's at in, in reducing your somatic cell count. So that, that average herd, what we found is that using the prices that we used and the benefit of, of increased milk production, those farms could spend around $27 per cow per year um, and still see an economic benefit to, to reducing their somatic cell count. But again, that, that's when the premium wasn't offered uh, but when the premium was offered, they could again spend up the, the max we looked at was $60 and it, it, they had no problem at seeing a return on that investment. Okay. Now, Derek, that $10,000, that, that was per what size herd per? So uh, uh, good question. Next cow was, yeah. Yeah. So the, the average herd, we were looking at the average herd enrolled in DRMS, um, I think it was for a 205 cow dairy. So, you know, it, in consideration for some of the herds in the U.S., a smaller herd, but $10,000 for that, for that 200, 200 cow dairy. Okay. Yeah. And that's, uh, I like to really wrap my head around when we look at those economics, like, yeah, put for a hundred cows, per 200 cows, per a thousand cows, what have you. So yeah. Yep. That's so a, yeah, I, that's a good, great point. It had been around $10,000 per 200 cows there. So obviously some money on the table. Um, one thing you still sometimes hear here and there, and I think the, the literature would support that, that there's no 
uh, negative aspect, but can you get cell count too low? We certainly have experience with clients that have uh, cell counts under 100,000 with, with excellent milk quality, and we don't see train wrecks or crashes with cows. But, um, you know, any comments there is uh, we don't want to get our cell count too low. <laughs> no, that's a great question. I, I wish we still knew the answer to that. I think actually there was just earlier this week, Hordes Dairyman had an article that had the same question. Um, so I'm kind of re relaying back to some of what I read in that article. But I think the the major, in short terms, no. I think the the benefits outweigh the risk. I think what the that article was saying is that the only concern if it would get be too low is the concern of are the cells responding then to an intermammary infection like they should. So the cows that genetically have a, a really low somatic cell count, are they at risk just because they're they're maybe not getting enough cells that that enter the mammary gland when it once it becomes infected? But but again, I think that that article um kind of came to the conclusion that, that the benefits of having a low somatic cell count far outweigh the risk of, of maybe that, that potential there. But so I'm, I'm of the belief that, that no, we can't get too low, but as you said earlier, that that's biologically there, I think economically, that's a different question. I think there does become a point where we're spending so much money on on preventing, you know, subclinical and clinical mastitis on the farm to to get our somatic cell count as low as we can. That there there may be a threshold now where we're spending potentially more money than we should, where it's not not economically feasible. And, and Derek, it's great to hear you uh, say that because I think in, in many examples we can look at uh, you know the, again the point of of diminishing returns, a uh, pregnancy rate, I think is a great example. You know, you're, you're at 29, 30%. Can you get to 32? Sure. But what are you going to invest to get there? And where can we invest that, that same effort or money to reduce disease, improve calf health, whatever it may be. So I really, uh, like to hear that because, um, you know, so many times we, we can get to certain metrics, but economically that, that bioeconomic response, right? What, what, what was biologically possible, but then, you know, what are the economics of that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And we see the same thing, same thing with metasomatic cell count. I mean, I have a producer right now that's, that's at 150 and really wants it to get it as close as he can to a hundred is, is that, is that economically feasible is, are we going to make uh, be able to pay off the the investment and the time that that we're going to spend trying to to reach that goal. That's that's one of the reasons I you know my dairy background and I love working with dairy producers so much is we always want to produce the highest quality product we can. Um, but yeah, that we need to think about how we can maybe spend time managing other areas of the farm too. Great. Well, th thanks, Derek. Um, you also mentioned that you're involved in in. Uh, some uh, research in, in terms of heat stress abatement and, and, and the economics of that. So, uh, you know, as, as most of the listeners know from previous uh, conversations, I, I spend most of my time in Torreon, Mexico. So we're already in heat stress. It's a little cooler in the morning, but uh, the days are 90s and, and, you know, very soon here we'll, we'll be in uh, severe heat, str heat stress in the next month, you know, really through October. So it's something we in, in Mexico think of um, daily, you know, even in the winter in preparation for that. 
So give us a little background of, you know, some of the things you're doing for, for heat stress abatement. Obviously you have a little more time in, in Illinois to, to really dig into that, uh, or, or worried about that, but, but preparation is obviously important for that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, uh, one of the projects I'm, I'm involved with right now is, is we're trying to determine heat stress incidents and in, in how that impacts the farm economically and your last point i think is probably one of the most important of yeah right now in in illinois we're sitting at low 50s high 40s on a good day but last week there it was in the low 70s so even though we're in in late march early april in illinois and we expect the weather to be a little a little colder there may be days coming up very soon that some of our cows are, we're going to be experiencing some, some heat stress events. Um, so back to your point, I, I don't think we can, we can have things ready to go soon enough. And even though those days may be few and far between right now, where, where our cows are experiencing heat stress, as you said, I think it's, it's important that we have the fans cleaned and ready to go and, and everything prepared as much as possible. Because the, the really the goal of this project is <clears throat> is to determine now on on months like like April or where we may have one or two heat stress days how how is that going to impact though the cow's lactation so even though right now our <clears throat> our uh, those days are few and far in between uh, if we experience a heat stress event right now. How long is it going to take that, does it take that cow to recover? And then as we get into the summer months where they're experiencing heat stress for multiple days in a row, do we see the same impact there? So if we're doing a, a good job of providing heat abatement to those cows, can we, how much can we, um, lessen that impact of that, of that heat stress event. So one way we're doing that is, is looking at uh, summer to winter ratios to get an idea of, of how producers may be uh, providing different heat abatement practices. So when I was at the University of Kentucky, we did a, a project looking at, at summer to winter ratios, trying to determine are the summer one, I think there's not, there hasn't been a, a really good way to determine impacts of, of heat stress and make it measurable for, for farmers to make a decision. And that's why one reason I like the summer to winter ratio so much is because we can now compare my production records in the summer compared to my production records in the winter. And ho hopefully that ratio is one. I don't think that's probably realistic. We want it to be a, as close to one as possible. But now I have a way to benchmark. If if I know my summer to winter ratio is is maybe less than average compared to other farms in the area, maybe I should be providing or spending some investment towards my heat abatement practices or, or trying to do provide heat abatement more more efficiently. Um, so, yeah, I'm always uh, about how how can we make the information usable on farm, and, and 
I think heat abatement's been a tough one, but I, I really like the use of the summer winter ratios for that. So in this this project that we're working on now is we're we're using those individual cow summer to winter ratios to determine uh, the potential impacts of not only the current lactation uh, but of future lactations, and then uh, packaging that information to at the at the farm level too to to, to try to determine uh, best heat abatement practices on farm. Great, that's really interesting, Derek. Especially those, we'll say those transition periods, right? I I, I know, you know, uh, for many years about being on farms. You know that that day that you were either doing herd check or out for a farm visit, and in some cases, you know, the curtains couldn't even be opened because there was a cable broken from ice over the winter, or 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 they hadn't you know greased the motors or what have you, and so you know the, the cows are suffering and. Nobody prepared, like you said, for that hot day in, in, in March, what have you, when you needed to drop the curtains and, and maybe turn on some fans. So, um, as you said, I think most dairies now are well prepared for when, when heat stress is more consistent. But what happens on those spring and fall days when you have those odd, odd weather events? Um, so that would be really interesting. And, 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 you know, then those benchmarks you said, it all comes back to economics, you know, investing in, in, in fans and sprinklers and so forth. You know, I remember years ago where, you know, you were just trying to convince somebody to maybe pick up a shower head in a electric eye and, and, and home Depot to, to put on the return alley or something. Right. And, um, so we, we've come a long way in, in that. Um, but yeah, again, putting the economics to that. So we, we have a solid number of <clears throat> what's the value and return of that, that investment. Um, are you looking specifically at any, um, activity monitoring, uh, you know, respirations, um, any, any type of tracking of actual body temperature in cows or, uh, or mainly looking at those production parameters? Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, right now, um, we're, we're currently only looking at, at production parameters, but I think in the future, in the future of the research that we're doing. It, it it would be really important to add those add those activity monitors and and any data that we can get from there because they give you a lot more information about what's going on at the cow level and what the cow is experiencing. So even if we can we can use those things now to to you know better predict some of these events and and how it impacts the cow, I think that's that's really really important and and would hope hopefully help us tell a more well rounded story of of the true impacts of, of some of these heat stress events. I think that's, yeah, really important. Excellent. And, 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 and Derek, you know, really, really, uh, important to hear you say, you know, that w what's directly, uh, something that can be implemented at the dairy level, you know, and that, and that's obviously reflection of your extension work, right? You're working with producers day to day is okay. The, you know, the, this, this concept, this recommendation, uh, could work, but now how do we actually implement it on the dairy? How do we, you know, if it's purchasing of equipment or, or just logistics, how do you make it work? Um, so I, I think that's a great insight that you have, you know, not only the economics, but day to day, okay, I got to bring this to a producer and now we need to implement this before in this case, heat stress actually happens and, and make sure that this all works. Yeah. I think it comes from, I still consider myself just an old farm kid that, that, maybe went to school for too long. <laughs> and so, yeah, I still, I'd like to think I still very much have that, that mindset of, 
of how we can implement things on the farm and how it's going to impact what we do on the farm. I mean, from my own experience, I, I still try to get on as many dairies as we can. And at the university farm, if I can ever pitch in and, you know, I still like to make sure I know how to milk cows and do those kind of things too. So <laughs> great, great. So I, in your day-to-day experience, you, know, you, 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 uh, have a valued role, uh, judging team with the, with the students teaching and, and then extension as you're working with producers day to day, uh, in your world, in your neck of the woods, where, where, where do you see the, the greatest opportunities, uh, these days? I'm sure obviously milk quality and, and, and heat abatement are obviously are two of those that you have interest, but what are some ar- other areas that the listeners, you know, uh, obviously each individual dairy is focusing on different areas, but what, what do you think some of the industry opportunities there are, the, the things that we really need to pay attention to as an industry? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, and, um, the, I just see some of the things that, that, that we've been dealing with here in the state of Illinois. One of them, I mean, I think it all comes down to, to how we can manage the, the farm economically and, and make, uh, the best economic decisions, decisions for the farm. One, one that we've had a lot of interest in, in lately from our producer groups is just the use of cover crops. How not only we've, a lot of farms have seen the benefits of what it does to their, to their soil health, but, um, using those cover crops as well for, for a forage for, for some of the animals on the farm, I think is also a great resource to, to be able to, to, to adapt and, and make our farms a little more profitable. So, so therefore the agronomy side of, of, uh, soil health benefits, uh, potentially erosion control, and then you know, that's a, it's a crop that can be used economically for, for feeding various classes of animals. Yeah. Yep. And I think, yeah, those are the type of strategies and technologies, right. That, that, that are going to separate those farms during good and bad economic times, right. To, 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 to stay competitive, right. What are those, uh, out of the box and maybe not also out of the box strategies or, or looking back even you know, future technologies, but what, you know, what was done in the past that maybe is more relevant today, or we, or we didn't implement correctly, but, but does have some relevance. And, and again, I think that's where that, you know, using the data like you are and the economics really uh, can show that benefit. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, that's probably one of the, the biggest, um, avenues that, that I can see is just a, a lot of farms are, are starting to adopt more and more technologies, but just being able to use that information, I think is, is really important. And maybe one of the biggest, um, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, my nose is wrong. We'll have to cut this part out. <laughs> um, one of the, yeah, but I think one of the biggest opportunities is, is not only the, the use of of information that we get from the technologies, but learning more about how to, to work with the data side of things in general. I mean, I think that's from, from conferences and things we go to, we always hear the term big data and how we can use it. Um, I think being able to, to make the data usable in a farm aspect and, and producers and those working on the farm being taught how to, to analyze and, and use the data for, to make management decisions. I think that's one of the biggest opportunities that, that not only have we, we had in the, 
the most recent years, but I think that's only going to, that's only going to continue of collecting not only individual cow data, but it seems like we, we can add technology to a lot of different things on the farm and being able to, to use that data, I think is going to become really, really important. Well, Doug, it's great to hear you say that. And, and certainly we could, we could spend a few hours on that. It, it you know, it's something that within dairy health, we, 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 uh, it's really one of the core of our, our business philosophies is using data. And, and with that is, you know, standardization, uh, confidence in the data and, and know that there could be lots of issues there as we, as we replicate dairy on data on farms, but also like you said, uh, data overload. So there's all this data that we have access to, and then how do we actually use it and then make correct decisions, which is so important, right? So all over interpretation of the data and, and, uh, not making the correct decision because there's some false interpretation of what we're seeing. So uh, there's lots of opportunity there. You know, the Wisconsin, the Dairy Brain, um, other groups, and, and and you know, softwares and so forth. But that's something likewise that we, uh, you know, hold that aspect uh, to a high standard of making sure that the data is correct. You know, before we put it in some report or some benchmarking tool, is this data correct? because we, we don't want to make the wrong decision. Yeah, I think too, the other, well, that's a great point. I think the other one too is how often should we be looking at it? So for example, going back to, to, to thinking about on my end of, of milk quality, we have, you know, inline sensors now. Do we need to, do we need to be looking at that every day? Probably not because, you know, somatic cell count and, and things can change so, so quickly. Our are we maybe making a management decision that we didn't need to because we're we're looking at some things maybe more often than we should? I think that's that's going to be another one that becomes really important. Of yes, we we've, we've gotten used to and we know how to look at the data now, but how often do we need to to analyze it to make decisions on the farm? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what what's normal variation? That's what we're really looking at. Is okay. This is the day to day normal variation expected in milk production or our somatic cell count and so forth. And what are our alert, uh, levels and you know, when do we have to react and when, when, when it's great, how do we, okay, replicate that, capture that, what are we doing now that we can keep this level of production, cell count health. Uh, and those are all really, really exciting areas and really, um, you know, process control. Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think that's, it's going to be a, a, a wonderful opportunity for the farms that as long as we can use it correctly, for sure. Yeah. Great, great. Well, Dad, I think we've, we've, we've covered some interesting topics here, you know, and it's great to see your, your, your varied interests and, 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 uh, and expertise, especially as you, uh, you know, deliver that to, to uh, dairy farmers, you know, really, and, and students, obviously, but dairy farmers where it's actually getting implemented. Uh, um, so great to, to visit about some of the things you're doing. It's time for our famous three. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt, Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach, AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. With early detection in health, reproduction, and feeding, SmaxTech future-proofs your dairy operation. Your partner in improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt, they provide high-quality, economical feed ingredients for ruminants. 
like their well-researched coated nutrients and fat powders that can support cows with additional available energy, which improves their overall health, productive performance, and your cost efficiency. You know, we've been asking uh, our participants here to, you know, uh, a few questions here. So uh, what's one of your, uh, you know, daily resources that you rely on? You, you mentioned hordes and I think uh, the, the lay literature, if you will, um, are super useful for, uh, you know, what's going on in the industry, what's new, so forth. Um, that we need, need to be cognizant that, you know, there's research that, that gets published that sometimes is, is quite delayed in, in getting to those. So, you know, still access with, with uh, some of the listeners, your, you know, your consultants and advisors that have access to, you know, Journal of Dairy Science and those type publications. But what, what, what are, what are, what's one or some of your go-to uh, references, if you will, for dairy? Yeah, I think um, be, well, working in extension, any, it seems like if, if I'm trying to look up something that maybe I'm unfamiliar with, I always start with somebody, one of our land-grant universities extension websites. So <laughs> not only, you know, our, our own here, but, and, you know, I don't want to leave any other schools out, but when I'm, when I'm looking for, like I said, something that maybe I'm unfamiliar with in, in my background, it seems like I always start with, with our extension websites uh, for, from our universities. Cause there's a, there's a lot of, of, of great extension specialists out there that are, are continuing to put out great information. And like you said, they're, they're trying to relay the, the research that's being done to, to make it implement so we can implement it on farms. So that's, and that's a great point. I think there's also, you know, plenty of smaller trials, uh, studies that get done at the university level that, you know, get picked up by extension because they're, they have intimate knowledge of that trial or research with some graduate students, but, you know, maybe they're a year or two or more from like JDS publication. So I think that's a great, great opportunity uh, to, for some of that to get, uh, you know, exposure of that, that data, that research, and then actually delivery to the, to the dairies themselves. Um, on the other end, uh, you know, uh, from a more personal note and any, any good reads lately or, or, uh, I guess it even include, you know, a, a documentary and so forth to, to, uh, for those folks who want to disconnect from work or, or dairy for a few hours. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't maybe read as often as I should. Uh, it seems like when, when we do take a vacation, I, I might spend some time and maybe get one book in, but I'm a, I'm a big, uh, crime, you know, like probably most everybody else, I just enjoy crime dramas and that kind of thing. So when it comes to books, uh, seems like almost any James Patterson book I've read, I've, I've enjoyed. Uh, um, yeah. And then the, the, it seems like shows and everything else I've watched are in, in kind of that, that, that same kind of area of that's just always been one, one Thing that I've, I think if I didn't go into to dairy, I may maybe would have went into law enforcement. So everything in that kind of realm, I've, I've enjoyed too. So, so I, I can actually see some some relevance there to to dairy and being a dairy advisor, right? I mean, what what do we do? We we investigate problems many of times, right? So okay, you know, as cell count is high, there's more BRD in calves, uh, some more ketosis. You know, it, it's not a crime investigation, but you know, I guess you could say the, the crime is more ketosis. Okay, what do we need to do to figure it out? Right. So, yeah, that, that'd be great. 
that's a great point. We're we're detectives, but in a, a different realm. That's for sure. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, that, that that's a that's a great up uh, example, I think. Um, and then I guess if you could leave our audience with uh, you know a tidbit, a word of advice, uh, you know, given the future, we talked a little bit about yeah, future opportunities and so forth. But what, what would you say? Uh, to our listeners there that are industry and, and, and producers. Yeah, I think, um, especially with, you know, my background now of, of teaching and, uh, in, in extension, the one thing that I think I've always realized, but it's, it's come to the more of the forefront of my mind recently is that, that we're all in this together. Um, we also want to see the dairy industry succeed, no matter if it's we're working with a 75 cow dairy or a multiple thousand cow dairy on, on different sites. So I think no matter the size, no matter uh, our backgrounds, we're, we're all in it together. And uh, just from, from our group, it, it's been really exciting. Uh, and I, I don't think enough of us can share our passion for, for the dairy industry either. I mean, a lot of the students that I work with now don't, didn't come from an agriculture background or a dairy background. And, um, through some of the courses they've taken, they've gained a lot more interest. And I I hope it's a, it's probably a very, very, very small part. I think it's just us, us, um, sharing our, our passion for the industry of, of helping these, these new, new people in the industry become more passionate as well. So like I said, I think, I think we're all in it together. And if, if we can share that passion with others, I think that's really important. That's great, Derek. I, I think, you know, even with it, uh, within that, if there's, if there's uh, young people that maybe don't even go into that field, um, whether it be animals, you know, some exposure through animal science courses, or I, I see a lot in, in veterinary students, you know, they, they have some production animal courses, but they're maybe never going to be involved in that industry. They're going to be small animal veterinarians. At least they have the knowledge to, perhaps give the correct information about, you know, the, the value of animal protein, animal welfare, obviously, and, and, and then, you know, environmental concerns, you know, recently uh, was speaking with a, 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 um, a good friend's spouse who, who is now vegetarian and, and, you know, not from any animal welfare rights standpoint, but from the environmental impact and just, I said, you know, uh, just being educated, right? Knowing truly what is the impact. Sure, there's an impact, but uh, you know, uh, comparison to other modes of transportation and so forth, right? So, um, I think that's a great point. You know, spread spread the word in a positive way. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, because we're all. I, I agree. It's becoming more and more. We're we're all meeting people now that for some reason or the other have, have maybe you know, have a, a negative view or not necessarily maybe a negative view, but for, for one point or another, have have gone away from animal agriculture. But I think the other thing a lot of people don't realize is most of us, if not all of us got into this profession in the dairy industry, because we like working with the animal. We like working out. So, yeah, you know, just sharing that again, sharing that passion, I think is, is really important. Great. Great. Well, Doc, I, I really thank you for, for joining today, taking taking some time from your day and, and teaching and and, uh, and producer visits to, to connect. Um, thanks to our listeners for, for joining uh, also. And uh, we'll look forward to the next uh, dairy podcast show. So you have a great afternoon, Derek. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Yep, you too.